Well, good morning once again, everyone, especially if you're visiting with us this morning. A very warm welcome. Uh, If you'd like to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, um, we're going to read from, I'm going to read now from verse 1 to verse 10. I was playing a video game with my son, um, Noah, during the week, and it's a survival game uh, where you land on a desert island and you've got to create resources like water and food and catch fish and and things like that, to just to be able to survive and eventually travel to other islands and get off them. Uh, it's based on the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks. And, uh, and I was thinking during the week, what would you, what would you want, most want if you were on a desert island? You know, and uh, part of the movie with Tom Hanks is he goes back to civilization eventually. Sorry, I'm ruining the story for you if you haven't seen it. And he looks at a a torch or a match and he's like, wow, if only I had that or a pair of scissors. But maybe another question is if you had one book or maybe even one book of the Bible that you would have with you, what book would it be? Uh, Maybe you could maybe just turn to the person next to you, say good morning if you're new, um, but just share with one another just briefly, what book of the Bible would you want to have and why would that be that book if you're on a desert island? Okay. Well, I'm sure there's lots of different answers. Um, For me, and it's not just because I'm preaching on it this morning, but it would be the book of Ephesians. Uh, I think Ephesians is everything you need to know about knowing Christ and living the Christian life. Uh, And in particular, what we've been looking at, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, from verse 1 through to verse 14. I know we've been reading this every week, but... These uh, verses are just so precious. Uh, It's like a treasure chest. And uh, each verse is like a a precious jewel that you take out and appreciate and cherish. So I'm going to read from verse 1 through to verse 14. And this is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace 
that he lavished upon us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. Let's pray. Lord, these are such precious truths. And we pray this morning that by your Holy Spirit, you would reveal to us a deeper knowledge and understanding as to what they mean. Lord, help us to know you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through your word. And be with me, Lord, that both what I say and how I say it would be what you would say and how you would say it. Encourage us, challenge us, rebuke us possibly, Lord. But Lord, may we hear your voice speaking to us through your word this morning. And we pray this for the glory of your name and for our own edification. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. If there's a general rule or principle which is true in politics as well as every other area of life, it's that division is death. The Lord Jesus Christ himself articulated this truth when he said, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. It's why on the one hand, the scriptures can say in Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Whenever there is Christian unity or harmony between other people, I think it's a little foretaste of heaven. But on the other hand, alienation and hostility is a precursor to the eternal torment of hell. It's the epitome of what it means to be under the righteous wrath of God. I often think of the passage in Titus 3 which describes us and what we're all like outside of the grace of God. Paul says in Titus 3 verse 3, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated, and hating one another. But then he immediately goes on to say, but when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, 
we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. That's precisely what we've been learning over the past couple of weeks, isn't it? As Kim Jagar outlined so clearly last Sunday, we have received the spiritual blessing of having been redeemed, of having all of our sins forgiven because of the blood Jesus shed for us on the cross. For in dying and then rising again, he has taken upon himself the punishment which we deserved. He has drawn down upon himself God's wrath and in exchange given to us the gift of his own perfect righteousness. And as Paul says, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, he's lavished this upon us. I love how Kim described it last week as like a really good Devonshire tea. I think the image is going to stay with us all for quite a while. God's love and grace is not stingy, but lavish. God's love is like a delicious, freshly baked, fluffy scone topped with a huge dollop of fresh cream and jam. Like a good Devonshire tea, it's so extravagant that it drips over the sides and gets all over your fingers and hands. It drips onto the tablecloth and onto the plate. That's how lavish God's grace is to us. His forgiveness is so comprehensive and his favour so all-encompassing that it overflows with spiritual goodness and divine generosity. Oh, how we need to keep on hearing this particular truth, friends. Because in our sinful weakness, or perhaps in our pride, we keep on doubting God's love for us. We don't rejoice in his mercy. And so we don't live in the freedom or the confidence of his acceptance. And so the truth of the gospel is something that we have to keep on coming back to, even as believers, over and over and over again. Now, there are three things that I want to talk to us today from God's word. And they all have to do with the revelation of God's plan. Now, please don't switch off and think just because there are three points, it's going to be formulaic. Because what I'm going to relay to you is quite literally the greatest mystery in the history of the world. Something you and I would never know or understand or come to participate in unless it was revealed to us from above. Unless God in his mercy gave us the illumination of his Holy Spirit. And it's this, that through faith in Christ, you and I are reconciled to God. That the division which once existed between us is no more and we've been adopted into God's family. The first point then is contained in verse 9. And it's that this plan of God 
has now been revealed. Now, this truth is all the more incredible when you realize that in Ephesus, they worshipped the idol Artemis. You can read all about their devotion to this particular demonic goddess in Acts chapter 19. Such was their devotion to her as a city, though, that the entire city rioted for two hours, shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The worship of Artemis, though, was part of an ancient pagan mystery cult where you had to be inducted into various religious secrets as to what the world was really all about and therefore your place in it. One of the blessings that the Apostle Paul says we have received, though, is we now understand the mystery to the meaning of life. The mystery of God's plan for the world has been revealed. Now, an even more dramatic and I think pertinent example of this is located in Daniel chapter 2. So please turn up to it again if you have your Bibles there and have a look at it with me. There you'll remember we learn about the king of Babylon having a prophetic dream about what the Lord has planned for the world. None of his magicians or astrologers or enchanters can interpret this and the king himself understood the importance of the dream even though he had no idea as to its actual meaning and so he asks his astrologers not just to interpret the dream but to actually tell him what the dream is to begin with which is incredibly clever because if they truly understand its meaning then they should also be able to have the ability to tell him what the dream was in the first place. When they object to this, though, no one has ever been asked to do this before. He sees through their deception and he orders that they all be executed. Now, this would have also involved the godly and righteous Daniel and his three friends because they had also been educated in the wisdom of the Babylonians. But in his great mercy, the Lord not only reveals to Daniel the content of the dream, but also the mystery as to its meaning. In fact, the word mystery occurs five times in this particular chapter. And the only other time the word mystery is used in the Old Testament is in Daniel chapter 4, verse 9. And in Job chapter 11, verse 7. That's the only other two times. So this chapter is all about the mystery of God's will, of his plan for the world. On both of those other occasions, though, the truth is reiterated that only God can reveal mysteries. But if you turn your attention to the explanation of the mystery of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2 you'll see that this is where things get really exciting. Because the dream is about this enormous statue made up of all kinds of different precious metals or materials, which is all about the different world kingdoms which are yet to come. 
the head of gold, as we saw, is obviously the king of Babylon. The chest of silver, the kingdom which comes after him, the Medes and the Persians. The belly and thighs of bronze is the kingdom of Greece. And then the legs of iron and the feet of clay is the kingdom of Rome. But then comes the really amazing bit. Because Daniel says to the king this, While you were watching this, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the earth. What would King Nebuchadnezzar have thought of that? Well, for a start, the mystery which was revealed to him was quite shocking because it meant, first and foremost, that his kingdom was not going to last. Yes, it was glorious and powerful, and so it was rightly described as being like the head of gold. But it was one day also going to come to an end. By the way, this is why in the very next chapter of the book of Daniel, in chapter 3, the king of Babylon does what? He himself makes an enormous statue. Not representative of his dream, but it's 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, and entirely made of gold. (laughs) And it's also why he ordered that everyone, again, on pain of death, had to fall down and worship this statue whenever the various musical instruments played. Why? Because he wanted to overturn the meaning of the dream. He wanted his kingdom to remain forever. He didn't want to just be the head of gold, but the chest of gold, the belly of gold, the legs of gold. He wanted his kingdom to remain. There's something else which we need to understand, though, about Nebuchadnezzar's dream because it directly relates to us. And that is, what is it that brings down the final kingdom of Rome? It's a rock. Significantly, not cut by human hands, which strikes the statue and it brings all the kingdoms of the world crashing down. And then what happens? This rock grows into an enormous mountain, which is so big that it fills the entire earth. That's more than a little extraordinary, isn't it? Because rocks don't grow, (laughs) right? They're by nature inorganic. But this rock grows and expands and extends like some kind of cosmic tree, which is precisely the content of the next dream which Nebuchadnezzar has about himself in chapter 4. The point that I'm simply trying to make, though, is that the content of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, what he saw 
3,000 years ago, has now become a reality. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been caught up in it. For the rock is Christ. The one that was not cut by human hands, but was with the Ancient of Days and whose beginning, well, had no beginning. And whose end will never end. And the mountain that it's talking about is his universal and timeless kingdom made up of the little rocks, the saints that believe in the rock, like you and I, or like the believers at Ephesus. Or as Paul says in verse 9, And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Isn't that incredible? There is not a land mass on earth today that doesn't have people that worship the rock that is Christ. His kingdom has just grown and spread throughout the whole world. But there are two other truths which we need to grasp and follow on from this. The first is that God's plan has not only been revealed, it's also being achieved. If you turn over to Galatians chapter 4 for a minute, I want to show you a really amazing verse. Because the revelation and actioning of God's plan took place at a very specific time. None of this is by accident, but in the perfect purposes of God, it is being realized precisely when he intended it. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 1, What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were children, were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. In Greek, it's the word stoikeia, the elemental forces of this world. Then Paul goes on to say this. He says in verse 4, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights as sons. Now when you stop and think about this, this is really quite profound. Remember a few weeks ago, Paul had talked earlier in Ephesians that we had been adopted as his sons. It's not a misogynistic statement. In the ancient world, the firstborn son inherited the estate. What it's saying to us today is that men and women, everybody that believes in Jesus, gets the full inheritance of God. Because only God could have, you know, you think about this. God could have easily sent his son into the world as a saviour a lot sooner than he did, couldn't he? But in his perfect wisdom, he chose not to. And what he did instead was to send all of these, these glimpses as to what he had promised. The Jews in particular were under the guardianship of the law. But the full content of what God had planned wasn't revealed until much, much later. It's why the Apostle Peter can say this in 1 Peter chapter 1. 
Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke the grace of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Isn't that amazing? The prophets knew that they were prophesying by God's Holy Spirit and they could see glimpses of the Christ. They could see glimpses of the mystery, but they couldn't see it fully revealed. They longed to know the time and the circumstances, but they didn't. But then it says this, Peter says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. You see, we have been given the full revelation of God's mystery. They saw but glimmers. We see the full picture. And then Peter says this, this is how extraordinary it is. Even angels long to look into these things. Even the heavenly beings that were with God didn't fully perceive or realize what was going to take place. But we do. You see, if you understand the gospel, then you have discovered something unbelievably precious. Something which the holy prophets on earth and even the angelic beings in heaven longed to know about, but didn't fully comprehend. That Christ is the focus of all of God's saving plans and redeeming purposes. That his death, resurrection and ascension on a hill outside of Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago would shake and change the very fabric of human existence. That it would overturn the effects of the fall and defeat the power of death once and for all. And that most of all, by you and I putting our faith in Christ, it would unlock all of the spiritual blessings in heaven. That through faith, we would receive forgiveness, eternal life, and the gift of God's Spirit. That was God's plan. To choose the weakest of weakest things as a channel through which all of his grace would come. Do you see it? If you do, you're incredibly blessed. Because all of human history is literally his story. It's all being woven together into this beautiful tapestry of both. Now, please... Pay attention to what I'm about to say here because it's not just one-sided. Of both salvation and judgment. Here's the really incredible thing that relates to you and I. As his church, as his body here on earth, did you know we're actually bearing witness today as we meet? You might not have thought about that this morning as you came to church. You might think, well, I'm going to church this morning and I'm bearing witness to maybe my friends and family who might ask me, maybe my work colleagues on Monday morning or my school friends, what did you do on Sunday? I went to church. I'm bearing witness. That's not even half of it. 
God willing, we'll come to this section in a couple of weeks. But turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Because this passage is really going to blow you away. Ephesians 3, and I'm going to read from verse 10. Paul says his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to who? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Oh, there's so much in this. But the really big thing to take away is just how important The church is in the purposes of God. For we, brothers and sisters, are the mountain which King Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. The Apostle Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Have a look at this with me again. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. He says, as you come to him, this is talking about Jesus, the living stone. Interesting choice of analogy, isn't it? Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Living stones. That would make a great name for a church, wouldn't it? I've never come across it. That's what a church should be called. Because that is what we are. We who have come to faith in the rock, the living stone, are ourselves being turned into living stones, little rocks, all being joined and connected together to form a mountain. Rocks which are alive and growing and together are being built. Actually, what it says here is more than a mountain. It says something even, I think, more profound and precious. We're being built into God's temple, God's house. And while we might not look like much on earth, all of heaven stands back in awe at what God is doing. I was at staff meeting this week with Libby and Trish and Annie. And it really struck me on just a very small scale of what we see here every week at church of just how amazing it is that I would be sitting around the table with these three women. I mean, where else do you see this kind of thing in our community, really? Men and women from every background relating to one another in love. Why? Because of Christ. If you think about it, You don't need to do this right now, but you only have to glance around the room and 
It's even on a grander scale. It's quite amazing. Actually, it's remarkable. It takes the power of God to do this. Because by nature, we would be divided. We wouldn't sit together in the same room. We wouldn't love one another. We wouldn't forgive one another. And that really speaks to the third point, and that the mystery of God's plan is that it involves not just Israel, but everyone. Not, Not just people from you know, his own people, but from every nation. And, and not just that, but things in heaven and on earth. God's plan is to bring all things together under one head, namely Christ. That's why, you know, when some people think, well, there are many ways to go to God, it's just not true. That's not in keeping with God's plan. God's plan is not that there should be many heads, but one head. It's a profound truth to get your head around, but at the heart of the universe exists the throne of Christ. He is Lord over every tribe and language and people and nation. Kingdoms come and go, but his kingdom remains forever. One of the best books in the Bible which speaks about this is the book of Revelation. Turn with me, please, to Revelation chapter 7. The first half of the chapter talks about the 144,000, which is not the Jehovah's Witnesses, (laughs) but the full number of the elect saints from the nation of Israel. That's why it talks about 12,000 from each one of the 12 tribes. Simple maths. It's a symbol for the complete number of those whom God has chosen of the Jews. But then in verse 9, John writes this. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In just a couple of months, we're going to have you know, a referendum on the voice to Parliament. It's something I've been thinking a lot about, and whether or not it will achieve what the government has purposed to say it will. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. That's the question you've got to answer. But one thing that has really struck me is this. As Christians, we are the real voice. We're the ones who have a message of reconciliation which can truly close the gap. Because we have a revelation of God's plan of salvation. The good news of redemption. The message of the cross which alone has the power to create unity where there was once division. You see, political strategies, they're destined to come and go just as the kingdoms and the nations of the world are. God's kingdom, though, is eternal. And as such, it's something that will never end. 
what God is doing here in and through the church is actually far more effective. Which is why sharing the gospel is so important. For as people are reconciled to God, the flow-on effect is that they are in turn reconciled to one another. Let's pray then for the kingdom of Christ to grow. For those whom God has chosen to come to faith in his son. To the glory of his holy name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for speaking to us through your word this morning. We're in awe, Lord, at the mystery of your will which has now been revealed. Who would have ever thought, Lord, that all of the treasures of heaven, all of the blessings, the spiritual blessings, could be ours through faith in Christ, a crucified Messiah, a crucified Saviour and Messiah. Lord, we pray that you would help us to treasure this and to share it. And we pray as you teach us to pray, Lord, that your name will be glorified and that your kingdom would come on earth just as it is in heaven. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.